Hey, deserving listeners, it's just me today. I thought I would respond to some patron emails. This first one is from Christy. Christy goes by KJAM <laughs> from Portland, Portlandia. Uh, Christy KJAM uh, emailed me recently and asked me if I had seen... Well, let me introduce the podcast first. This is the uh, Psychology in Seattle podcast. I am your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I am a therapist and a professor. So uh, listener KJAM wrote in and asked if I had seen the news report about that prankster guy who was at the University of Washington and he had a audio of um, uh, a bomb threat, essentially, and he was filming himself. If So if you haven't seen this video, let me try to describe it because it's hard to, hard to visualize, I think. But essentially you have this, this YouTube guy who is trying to become famous on YouTube or trying to make a living on YouTube or, or maybe he's on Twitch actually. So on one of those kinds of places and I think it's Twitch actually. And so, uh, he, what he does apparently is he walks around in public and then people who are watching can pay him money to do things to, you know, essentially people are watching it on their computers and they will, uh, dare him to do things and they pay him money. So, so for instance, they'll give him five bucks if he walks up to a girl and asks her to have sex or something. And no joke, those are, that's the kind of pranksterism that happens. And people watching are, you know, enjoying the show because it's funny to watch a guy walk around in public having to do these really embarrassing things and to see different people's reactions you know, th this comes from a long line of uh, candid cameraism or pranksterism or I don't know, whatever you want to call it. It's not like it's anything new. But what is sort of new is that what he allowed people to do is for a fee, he, they would be able to upload any kind of audio that they wanted. The fans watching at home could upload any kind of audio they wanted. And the audio would play from this guy's backpack. This guy had like a, you know, a Bluetooth speaker of some kind, and it would just broadcast to people. So people would, um, upload, um, swear words or racist epithets or something. And, and the people at home would get this giggle out of this hapless guy walking around in public, having, this speaker spew out this horrible, you know, audio and people would um, be aghast in real life and people at home would be giggling. And it, it's all basically, I don't know, it, it, when you watch it, it is, it is um, not pleasant to watch. It is, cr it's cringeworthy just from the get go. Cause you're, cause you're, you're just like watching a bunch of, I don't know, slightly psychopathic nerds uh, paying this guy to do these antisocial, ridiculous things that aren't really even very funny. Like there's this, so, so, uh, uh, so there's that. Um, plus as you watch it, you're just thinking, is our society going down the tubes? Is this, is this where we've, is this what we, you know, people slaved over, trying to make our country free and people built this country up. People invented computers, people 
worked hard in garages to to make the internet interesting and this is what the internet has produced <laughs> you know just uh, pranksters walking around with a speaker saying the n-word 10 times and this is how this guy makes money this is how the, a guy this guy makes a living so that's that's another reaction that frankly a lot of people are having uh, is that our society is going down the tubes but what i would say is the the notion of pranking people has been around probably forever i'm guessing i mean when i was a kid I'm guessing, I don't know, 10 years old. I, I went through a phase with my friends where we would we would just prank call people, right? We would call people on the phone, a random phone number, and we would say some sort of stupid prank. I'm sure it was like really dumb because, I don't know, I wasn't a super funny person when I was a kid. I still don't really consider myself a super funny person, so I'm sure the, the quote-unquote jokes were, were terrible. And, you know, we were psychopathically bothering other people. We were not having empathy for other people. We were uh, making other people suffer and we were getting a kick out of it. And uh, that's uncool. So I, I did that. And uh, uh, now has everyone done it? No, but a good portion of the society as young people will do this. And young people have access to the internet just like old people do. (laughs) And young people don't have developed morals the way old people do. We have studied that for decades, that young people have a developing moral sense. They, and then later on, we discovered they have a developing brain that isn't really fully adult until your mid-20s-ish, depending on the person and depending on your point of view. But the, uh, the whole... So I don't think our society is going down the tubes. I think it's just expressing its... Um, regular feature of pranksterism in a new way. And uh, it looks scary, but I don't know. So um, so this guy so this guy was doing this and, and many other people are doing it too without much um, media attention because it's a fairly niche thing that not a lot of people get involved in. But the guy became famous because he went... Uh, to my alma mater, my where I went to college at the University of Washington. It's a large campus. You know, there's something like, I don't know, 80,000 students and several classrooms and uh, several buildings. And I mean, just walking across the, the normal campus, I think, takes like a half an hour or something. And, and there were times when I would have to do that. It's like I had, a, I had one class on one side of the campus and another class on the other side of the campus, and it was like impossible to get there. But anyway, um, so when so this guy goes to the University of Washington, and he just starts walking into classrooms. He starts walking into because uh, you can just walk into classrooms. There's no there's no security guard on on the different classrooms. So he just walks into a classroom, and then people watching at home will pay to have this guy's pack with the speaker in it just start spewing out whatever they wanted to. And so that would happen. And then all the students and the teacher would, uh, everyone, everyone's heads turn at this guy and the guy's just standing there going, I don't know. I don't What do you mean? What do you mean, bruh? I'm just, I'm just standing here. My, yeah, my, yeah, just, I mean, I'm not producing it exactly, but, um, so he was doing that for a while. He was walking around classrooms and doing this. And, and it's, it's awful. I mean, it's one thing, I guess, to walk around a park and 
humiliate yourself and other, you know, it, there's certain things that I would, that I wouldn't, um, condemn someone for doing. Like if he was in a park and someone paid him to like, um, do five cartwheels or something or to eat a leaf in front of people or something, you know, like, okay, that's, that's a prank that doesn't scare people and people don't really have to do anything. They can just look at the guy and go like, that guy's weird, whatever. But going into a classroom in the middle of, of a lecture and people are paying for this education um, and you're just going to ruin everyone's day. You're just going to, in this really not funny way, you're, you're just going to do that. And um, that's, um, I, I just, just I'm wrong. It's just immoral in some ways, but on the scale of things, you know, not, not awful, but what he really got in trouble for was he goes into this other classroom and it's all you can see, you can watch the video. So I think he has like a YouTube cam or not a YouTube camera, but like a GoPro camera, like, or a, some sort of webcam on his body. So you can see what, you know, everyone around him essentially. And so he walks into this one room and there are, I don't know, 20 ish students in, and a, and an instructor, I think standing in a, in a small room. It's a pretty small room. And, I don't know if it's a class or it's just a group of students or maybe even co workers at the University of Washington, but they're, they're, you know, people 20 to 30 years of age standing in this room. He walks in there and someone pays to, if I, if I understand the story correctly, someone pays to have this audio played, right? And because that's what's been going on with this guy's deal and it's been going on all day. And, and this audio gets played of a bomb threat. It says something like, in in five seconds, a bomb will or or says something like, "I am a I am a I am a suicide bomber," and in five seconds, a bomb will will blow up and everyone is going to die. Five, four, and it's a D, you know, and everyone turns around and looks at him and is immediately terrified, right? And they all, it, the, the fear on these people's faces and they just start running naturally, right? Because they, but the other thing that should be mentioned is this guy calls himself, I can't remember what he calls himself, but he, he calls himself a Arab something. I can't remember his, I don't want to give him any publicity, but, and he uh, dresses or, I don't know, and he looks like a very stereotypical a suicide bomber, you know, uh, I don't know if he looks anything like actual suicide bombers, but he has the face and sort of the crazy eyes. If you just look at his face, he has a face of a stereotypical suicide bomber. So all these people turn around, they hear this bomb threat, they hear this, you know, this ticking bomb, um, and they see his face and he's just standing there and he has like kind of a, a lot of equipment on him because he has to have the speaker and this camera. And so, you know, it's conceivable that he does have a bomb. Now the, the YouTube guy doesn't know that that's, what's going to be played. He just walks in and the people at home pay to play this audio on his person. And so he walks into the room. He doesn't know if anyone's going to pay any money to do it. He just walks into the room. If I understand the situation correctly. So then uh, everyone runs out of the room and then he leaves because he's still working. And so he, he needs to find some other prank to go. And so he's walking around and eventually uh, the cops are called. Right. 
and and he's laughing about it before the cops show up. He's like, "Oh my god, that was, you know, that was epic. People were, did you see their faces? Oh my god, that was hilarious." And again, it's just like, "Where's your moral compass?" And then eventually he works his way down to the Ave, which it's called the Ave, but it's actually University Way. <laughs> but we called it the Ave, which is weird. But anyway, he works his way down there. It's this kind of um, very, very busy street uh, next to the university campus. And the cops show up and they they proceed to arrest him. And it's all caught on camera because he's, he's broadcasting live video. And the the police officers are uh, being extremely nice to this kid because he just made a bomb threat in the middle of a classroom and he has a huge backpack and he's not complying with the arrest. He's not like, Oh my God, I'm sorry. There's no bomb. You know, he's, he's being combative. He's like, what's the matter, bro? I didn't do anything, bro. What do you mean, bro? Come on, bro. Lots of bro, lots of bro. Uh, I'm pretty sure there's an inverse relationship between the amount of times you say bro in a day and your IQ. I, I know that's a dick thing to say, but uh, I, I, this guy deserves it. <laughs> so anyway, he's like, come on, bro. What do you mean, bro? What do you mean, bro? I, I didn't do anything, bro. And the police officer, uh, given the way that this guy was behaving, the police officer is a saint for not having just shot him because of the what he had done and what he could have actually, you know, he could have actually been a bomber, right? And he's holding a cell phone, so and that's one of the ways that you can detonate a, a bomb is through your cell phone. And anyway, so it's all caught on camera. If you go on YouTube or Reddit or something, you can find all this. So then that catches the internet's attention this this whole sequence of of events and uh, there's lots of news stories about it and blah blah blah. and then uh k jam from portlandia emails me today and asks me what i think about it and what what i think about it is that it is immoral and it's immoral because you terrified 20 individuals you traumatized them you made them believe they were about to die and that that's that's morally wrong. You know, it's one thing to prank someone by, you know, for example, uh, eating a pine cone in a park and having people look at you and think that you're weird. That's one thing. It's a whole other thing to walk into a room and essentially make a bomb threat. And the, uh, now who's to blame, right? Because on one hand you're like, well, of course, you know, this YouTuber is to blame. But on the other hand, the person who uploaded that soundbite of a bomb threat is at least also to blame, if not more to blame. So, or at least, anyway, I I hope the prosecutors um, nail these these two individuals and maybe other people for what they had done during that day, and really send a message to the internet and to to adolescent pranksters at home that there's a line. You know, there there are. I, I want a society in which people can walk around with speakers and have funny things coming out of the speaker. I, I don't want to live in a world where we make that illegal. I, I think that that's a bad world. Um, it would be, with that particular law in place, I would like that world better. I don't want to walk around in a park with someone with a speaker saying random things. I don't want that. But I also don't want to live in a society in which things like that are illegal. I want uh, to live in a society where things like that are are allowed. 
and even supported by the legal system. So, uh, but I don't want to live in a world where people can make bomb threats and scare the shit out of people uh, f- because they think it's funny and because they're making money off of it. That is abhorrent. It's immoral. It's wrong and uh, needs to be, needs to come to an end. And apparently the only way you can teach young people to, uh, you know, these particular individuals to follow moral codes is by making something illegal and scaring them into uh, following moral behavior because they're worried they're going to go to jail or be fined or something. And so, so um, that is my opinion about it. Uh, And I don't know if I have anything else to say about that. Um, The police officer was a saint. The, uh, YouTuber is just another prankster. I'm guessing the YouTuber, uh, I'm guessing what happened. So here's another part of it actually that I should say is that the YouTuber, the Twitter guy, I don't know what platform he's on, but he probably started out as like, okay, I'm going to be another Logan Paul. I mean, it's not like there's, there's not a precedent for this kind of career essentially of, of pranksterism in, in public. I mean, there are, there are people literally making millions of dollars from this sort of thing. And, and, uh, and, you know, it's most of it is innocent, so to speak, and just sort of goofy. And occasionally lines are crossed and, um, these individuals get slammed and either prosecuted or lose viewers or anyway, they, they get punished if they cross the line, like Logan Paul going to the, the suicide forest, uh, quote unquote in Japan. And, you know, he, he got a ton of bad press. He also got a ton of press. So you have to wonder about that. And then you also have to wonder about this YouTuber about, um, cause his numbers were actually pretty low when I saw him. And I wonder if his numbers are actually higher now because he has, he has all this notoriety, but anyway, um, you know, this, this is a thing and we have to get used to it, uh, because we can't live in a society in which things like this are illegal. But but we also have to f- figure out a way of establishing lines and also uh, communicating what where that line is to people that do this so that they understand that, um, you know, there are certain things you can and can't do. Like, you don't have to tell one of these YouTubers that it's wrong to, for example, um, you know, pay someone. So, you know, if, if someone paid five bucks and said, okay, I want you to steal a car, um, on camera, uh, the YouTuber or Twitter guy would not steal a car. He'd be like, well, that's illegal. I can't, I can't steal a car. I, I'd get in trouble. Um, you know, ask, dare me to do something else other than that. So, so these, it's not like they don't understand how to follow the law or they don't understand laws. It's that we're in a new world where this sort of thing hasn't really been done enough yet so that the line isn't really understood. And so I think we, we need to use this case to really send a message to these kinds of individuals where that line is. And, um, and so that, that's my hope anyway. So let's go on to another email. Oh, actually. So, uh, K jam from Portlandia also said that she really related to the Amway discussion that we had. And she goes into a long, discussion about how I, if I'm scanning this correctly about how her partner, um, what, what 
played football in high school, I believe, and really loved the football coach. And then um, the football coach invited him over for a barbecue. And then at the barbecue, it was an Amway sales pitch. So, so this, uh, you know, so imagine that <laughs> you, you, you play football, you love your head coach, and then your head coach invites you over for a barbecue and then proceeds to try to get you to join Amway. How weird that would be and, and how much of a reversal of respect that would be. And, and that's what happened to him. Uh, and then she goes on to say that this coach uh, later went on to uh, commit securities fraud and had all these problems. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I had a similar experience when I was growing up. I, I, I had a coach who I really respected and, and cause there's something, there's something about your, I don't know about you out there in podcast land, but for me, uh, I played a lot of sports and I loved my coaches and I worshiped them. And there's, there's two times that I could talk about in terms of like how that can come crashing down in weird ways. Like the first time it happened was I, so I wrestled when I was young and worshiped my wrestling coach. He, uh, had he he was a wrestling coach for many years and his wrestling teams always won the league championship for something like eight eight plus years in a row or something you know he was like a god in our community regarding wrestling and and coaching and anyway so uh i really looked up to him and he was my my good friend's dad and so i don't know i just really liked him and and then I'm walking through the mall and we go to Nordstrom's and I see him and I'm like, oh, hey, coach, how's it going? And he and he's like, oh, yeah. And I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, well, actually, I'm, I'm working here because it was over the holiday season and he was working. He was selling shoes at, at Nordstrom's. And as an adult, looking back, I'm like, well, of course, because teachers don't make enough money and uh, and particularly like probably his kind of because you know coaches are often teachers at the school right they teach health and PE and that kind of stuff and you know he he didn't make enough money and so he had to work at Nordstrom's over the holidays to pay for expensive Christmas gifts for his kids and as an adult I totally understand that I'm just like yep makes sense um, but as a child, it really threw me because, you know, I was indoctrinated into all these ideas of class and of where people fit in. And to me, he was like, he was like top of the heap. You know, he was like president of the United States of America. He was, a, he was in my world, he was huge, you know, just lots of power, lots of respect. And to see him selling shoes at Nordstrom's really, really threw me for a loop as a kid. Yeah, so that that was one example. Another example is uh, a football coach that I liked a lot and respected a lot. He was a powerful man. He uh, was a solid guy. He, um, you know, would rarely lose his temper. But when he did lose his temper, it made sense. If that makes any sense. I mean, there were times when us as football players were were too goofy. Like we would be. Uh, playing a football game and uh, we would be losing the game come halftime and we'd all go into the locker room and the, the coach and, and we'd be laughing and making jokes. And uh, we're so, you know, when you're losing a game or really any, any football game, particularly once you get to varsity high school level, 
the the halftime uh, locker room experience is supposed to be serious. You know, there can be a little bit of joking, but it needs to be serious. You know, you, you need a tone of professionalism or, you know, of intensity. After the game, feel free to joke around. But before and during the game, you're supposed to you're supposed to have a certain mindset, you know, eye of the tiger, that kind of thing. And this coach, he um, uh, saw us halftime. We're losing, and we're joking around because there were a lot of jokesters that I really enjoyed on the football team. A lot of we had, you know, there's just a lot of joking that goes on in a in a football um, locker room, and uh, good guys and funny guys. And uh, anyway, so the coach comes into the, the locker room and just lost his shit and 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 he got so angry that he he punched his um i think i've told about this on the podcast before he he punched his um his clipboard and the clipboard exploded into like 20 pieces because he because he was a strong guy when when we would do weight training um everyone was always comparing like how much you could bench you know how much you bench how much you bench oh 220 oh i can do 225 i I can do three reps at 250. What are you talking about? Like everything, no one compared squats or curls. It was all about benching. How much can you bench? Well, our football coach could bench way more than any of us could. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's sad, you know, because you look at adults and you're like, oh, you're sad and old. And then, you know, he proceeds to uh, outdo us on the bench. He was a strong, intense guy and, and I liked him. Well, then comes out later from, I don't want to go on the record and say this because I guess people could figure out who this was if they, if they, particularly if they knew where I went to high school and knew me. But I heard that there was some inappropriate relationships happening in his life. I'm not sure about that, but obviously it was rumor. But anyway, when I heard that, that was a very difficult thing for me to deal with. It was, you know, to, to have someone, you know, I imagine it's similar for people who worked with certain people in the media that we hear about, you know, like, um, I mean, I, I, from what I understand, everyone hated Harvey Weinstein, but, but someone like Kevin Spacey, right. If you looked up to him and then you learn about this sort of thing, you're just like, Oh, you know, it's, or or Louis C.K., probably a better example. A lot of people loved and respected Louis C.K., and then to have it come out that he was using his relationship to sexually harass coworkers and people who were basically working under him uh, and to basically sexually, in some ways, assault them, you could argue that that's, what's, that what's, that's what was happening. He uh, he masturbated, and he would... He would, he would sort of pressure women to go back to his room, his dressing room or something. And then he would proceed to masturbate in front of them. And, um, he, that's, that's something he liked to do. And he tricked himself into thinking that it was consensual when it was pretty obvious that it wasn't. And so, um, there's actually a really interesting scene in one Mississippi, the Tignataro, TV show on Amazon. If you haven't seen it, it's it's hilarious. It's if if you like Tignataro, which I do, I love her. There's there's two seasons. I think it's only like six episodes a season. Uh, Amazon's doing this weird kind of model where they, I guess Netflix kind of does this too, where they'll pay for a TV show and but they only pay for like six or ten episodes, which is kind of cool because you you can power through the entire season pretty quickly. And anyway, it's called One in Mississippi. And Tignataro knew Louis C.K. And so 
she made a um, a TV show called One in Mississippi that's basically a movie about her or a TV show about her life. It's it's slightly askance from her real life, but it's but there's if you know Tignataro's life, it's very very similar. And she has a scene in there in which a superior uh, masturbates in you know in front of her coworker and her friend, and she is really upset about that. She really confronts him in this really great way. Anyway, you got to watch it, but let's take a break. When we get back, let's continue with more emails. Okay. We're back from the break. If you haven't become a patron of the podcast yet, what are you waiting for? Do so now go to patreon.com, become a patron. Also, we are having our 10 year anniversary show, which will not be recorded by the way. And will be a, a, a extravaganza of various different things. <laughs> um, it's basically like a variety show. We're gonna be on stage and uh, talk with people in the crowd and do tougher bluffs. We're gonna have guests um, on the stage. We're gonna do some role plays. It's it's basically just for fun. There's a lot of fun things that happen and um, and maybe a little bit of. Um, information uh, some, because I didn't do any, I didn't do any mini deep dives at the last show. And someone said, yeah, maybe you should do a mini deep dive for 10 minutes or something, something of psychological interest. And so go to Facebook, our Facebook page to find out more information, but it is August 11. <laughs> Actually, I should know that. Let me make sure. Yeah. August 11, three o'clock North city bistro and shoreline, Washington. Okay. So let's go on to some other emails here. So I just got an email from Jasmine, and Jasmine is asking about how to become a professor, how to get a job in research and academia, and has a a lot of uh, interesting uh, questions, and also asks, is there any sort of work experience or volunteering I should be doing in the meantime? It's really hard to say, but it really depends on the kind of job kind of professor or instructor job you want. There are many different kinds of jobs in academia in, in terms of instructing and different different organizations in different countries, different cultures, different levels. You know, you can teach psychology in high school. You can teach psychology in community college. You can teach it at a research university. You could teach it at a master's training program. You could teach it in a PhD program. You know, there's there's so many different angles to it and so many different requirements and pathways and stuff. Like for me, um, my pathway to becoming a professor was I was in my master's program and uh, an instructor, uh, the the chair of the program, Paul David, just liked me and saw in me that I could be a teacher and asked me to be a teacher. And so I was like, okay. And I, I'd never thought about being a teacher. <laughs> so that was my pathway. And then I got my doctorate and blah, blah, blah. So that's one pathway, but you know, that's not the only pathway, of course. Um, my program, we just hired five new full-time faculty. We're, we're just ballooning our, our program. There's so many people who are coming, which is great, you know, to have a larger team and frankly, you know, better job security. But, um, but yeah, so when we hired those people, we did the traditional thing where we sent out a call around the world for anyone who wanted to uh, teach here. And so we got candidates from all over the country, and they flew out and were interviewed and um, did teaching demonstrations and 
Um, and then we hired a bunch of people based on that. So that's more traditional than, than what I went through. And so, so there's a lot of different kinds of pathways, but to answer your last question of, you know, is there any sort of work experience or volunteering you should be doing in the meantime? The, the answer to that is teaching. Uh, it, well, it depends on what you, so you mentioned Jasmine that you want to be a researcher in academia. Um, so there are people who work in academic institutions that don't teach. They just do research, but in general, most of them teach. So the, uh, if you, if you want to start doing anything, you need to get teaching experience. You just have to do the reps. You know, it's like stand up comics will do hundreds upon hundreds of stand up routines in front of audiences before they actually do the big show. You know, they, they do open mic and then they do little 15 minute blurbs and some of them don't go well. And sometimes there's only two people in the audience and sometimes there's a hundred people in the audience, but they just do it, you know, day in, day out, you know, the, the best stand up comics, by the time you actually saw them uh, do their routine and you're thinking they're funny, they probably had hundreds of terrible shows prior to that moment because it's trial and error and you have to get used to it. And being a teacher is exactly the same thing. Like you have to, it's, you have to get up on stage, which is a classroom, and you just have to do stuff. You know, you, you have to see what it's like to be an instructor and know how it feels and be comfortable and be able to ramble, be able to answer people's questions, be able to intuit what's happening in the room. You have to read the room. You have to develop routines and different options that you can go to under certain circumstances. You need to find out what people respond to. You know, I can't tell you how many times as, as a professor I've prepared a uh, class curriculum and, uh, and, you know, executed it in class to find that no one appreciated that, what I made, you know, like I, I'll, I'll be like, Oh man, I'm going to do this whole module on grief therapy. And it's, you know, I'm going to have, I'm going to do all this research and I'm going to put all these slides together and videos. And, and then, you know, I present it to people and people are like, huh, okay, interesting. What else you got? <laughs> you just don't know what people are going to respond to you until you actually do it. And so if you want to become a, a good instructor, uh, on resume, you need a lot of different instances where, because there are people who apply for, um, you know, our open positions who have minimal teaching experience. And it's always concerning to us and to me to uh, be hiring someone with minimal experience. And so, so you need to teach um, as many, um, little classes, free classes as you can, you know, just offer up, just be, just go to a, an agency or, you know, um, some kind of organization and say like, Hey, uh, at a lunchtime, I have a, I have a 30 minute presentation on birth order. That's what I did back in the day. I was just, I was just like, um, I could talk about birth order for 30 minutes and how that influences personality and having that on your resume helps because it, it looks good. But more importantly, it actually gives you the reps so that you actually become a more um, proficient instructor. Having said that, it's it's really impossible for me to advise someone, uh, Jasmine, regarding exactly how to get a job in academia. Um, the the prob- probably the best thing you can do is actually find someone with the job that you want, you know, and that might take a bit of time. But actually find that human being, and then ask them how they got there. 
and then ask them uh, to help you develop that plan and maybe even have that person mentor you over time uh, because each sort of job will have a different kind of path. So, um, And really this applies to any career um, that you want to have is find the actual human who has that job. Don't just imagine what that job would be like. Actually find that human being, reach out to them, figure out a way to have a conversation with them, maybe even an ongoing relationship where you can find out, one, what the job is actually like, and two, how to get there. There was a time when I was um, 19 years old, 20 years old, and I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. And I thought that going into marketing and advertising would be fun and interesting. And then I actually met someone who worked in advertising and he convinced me that I did not want to work in advertising. (laughs) He said that unless you live, breathe, sleep, dream, um, you know, everything advertising, then you won't make it in this world because the, the top advertisers or the competitive advertisers, they, they work 70, 80 hours a week because, um, that's just the kind of world that it is. And, uh, at the time, particularly, I was like, that sounds horrible. Never mind, <laughs> And that instantly turned me off. Now, I don't know if that's accurate. It, you know, there could be people working in advertising who are like, oh no, it's not that way at all. But, but I don't regret that choice. I imagine that sort of work would be very fun create, creatively, but would actually be extremely stressful because you're constantly trying to get the account and retain the account and blah, blah, blah. So um, anyway, so the point is, is think about the sort of jobs you want. Actually find the human, do the homework, ask them what the job is like to make sure that you actually want to do that job. And then if you do like to do that job, find out how they got there. Okay, let's go on to another email. So this is from Laura, and Laura has a pretty interesting email about uh, cultural appropriation. So I have been getting, so we did a whole episode about cultural appropriation, and, or I did by myself, I can't remember, but um, I went into detail about it and didn't really have it all thought out very well, and sort of developed my thesis as the episode was going. Then we did a follow-up because I felt like it was important. And we did another episode in, in which I clarified my position. And, um, and now I'm doing yet another follow-up because apparently I'm either not explaining it correctly or, and or this is such a sticky wicket that a lot of people just have a hard time getting out of their normal way of thinking. So, so basically there's, there's two different quote unquote normal ways of thinking that I find that people are having a hard time getting out of. The first one is that this notion of offending people. I hope that in the episodes that I talked about a culture, cultural appropriation, I never talked about offending people. The whole word, you know, um, about the whole, the whole notion of it, that's in the media and Twitter and everything about like, Oh, that offends me. Or you're offended by th- things too much. You're a snowflake. Everything offends you. That whole language is so fraught with problems that I don't like it. I don't think it, I don't even think it really describes the situation well, because it's not about offending, uh, cult, you know, so for example, if, um, you know, if someone uh, on Halloween this year, uh, a white person dressed up in blackface, for example, they 
there there would instantly be all this talk about you know offending right oh that offends me this offends me but i find that that's a uh just a symptom of what's really happening which is that for some people it actually gives them psychic pain they feel hurt and in emotion focused therapy we learn that there are primary emotions like being hurt and which can lead to secondary emotions like anger such as and then attacking aggression uh, saying that offends me you're being racist right so so that's what you'll see as people react the, what you'll see is people's secondary emotions you know i'm angry at you you're a racist that was wrong you know uh chinese dress girl you did something wrong um you are a terrible person rather than st- st- stating with the original emotion which is hurt which is pain which is to say like when i as a black person, when I see someone uh, do blackface, it actually hurts me it, because of what that reminds me of and what it symbolizes to me. And also, you are sort of hurting me because you seemingly don't care about all the other instances in our society in which it's been discussed that blackface actually hurts uh, many African Americans. So the the blackface whole thing hurts me because of the history and... Um, you know, because basically back in the day, if you don't know, there were white people that would dress up as black people and put black, put, you know, shoe polish on their face or something to, to have black faces. And they would do a very cartoon version of black people. You know, it's sort of like watching um, Breakfast at Tiffany's and you're watching, um, oh, what's his face? I can't remember his name, but he's doing this total cartoon version of a Japanese person. He's, oh, so, oh, very, thank you very much. Oh, oh, sayonara, you know, just with really slanty eyes and buck teeth and, you know, glasses and, and and he's just this really ridiculous character. Like, um, you know, on one hand, you could just be like, well, he's, he's a crazy Japanese person. Not every Japanese person is like that. But when you live in a society in which there's n- almost no depictions of Japanese people except for that, you're, and you also know that that's how white people see you, it, it hurts your feelings because you're just like, that's, that, that makes me, that basically paints my entire race as a ridiculous, sort of subhuman, ridiculous, uh, uh, section of humanity. Um, I no, I don't know anyone like that. Well, the same goes for with blackface. You, there were people who would get up on stage and be in movies and stuff, and they would quote unquote act black, but their version of black was like this, um, you know, really ridiculous notion about black people. The same goes for when you have my, my high school, for example, growing up was the Issaquah Indians. And so our mascot were Indians, which is just, you know, abhorrent. But, and there were times when we would have a pep rally of some sort and someone would dress up like an Indian. So what does that mean? Because, you know, Native Americans are, dress up in all sorts of ways, right? Some of them are lawyers and some of them are farmers and some of them are teachers. So what is it like to dress up like a quote unquote Indian? Well, of course you would have the headdress with the, with the feathers and the, you know, the leather, you know, tassel stuff. And then you would dance around 
you know. And of course, we didn't have any Native Americans that we knew of in the in the audience, and so it was just a bunch of mostly white people watching this cartoon version of an Indian. So now, did we know at the time that we were hurting people's feelings? No, we because we were so cut off from Native Americans. Ironically, our superintendent of the district was Native American. <laughs> And I believe was trying to get us to stop doing that kind of stuff. And I remember, you know, it's Reagan times and eighties. I remember there was, you know, obviously a lot of backlash against her, but I, I don't know if I remember that correctly. But anyway, the point is, is that what often gets talked about is that offends me, but really what it, what it is, is it's hurtful. It's painful. It's like, you know, you're painting me and my mom and my dad and my siblings and my aunts and my uncles and my ancestors and my grandparents in this really consistently hurtful manner. And that hurts my feelings. And so I, I employ you to stop doing that. I, I don't know. I'm sure you don't know how much it hurts me to see stuff like that. Um, that's what needs to be communicated. So Cultural appropriation is not about offending in my book. It's also not about, um, you know, political correctness. It's about having one empathy for the possibility that you're actually giving other people psychic pain. And two, if you are having psychic pain, that you communicate it as such that instead of communicating it through anger or by not, by not at the very least, not by telling people how it affects you. Because if all, you know, if you're a white privileged person and you're culturally appropriating something and it's hurting you and all you do is come at them with anger and aggression and accusations of racism, then all they're going to think is like, you're just, you're just overreacting. But if you tell them, look, when I saw that, it hurt me and, and I felt, I cried. <laughs> I, it, it reminds me of all the horrible things that have happened to my people. And when you do that, it's, it's just, it's just another white person invading my world without asking me, you know, the amount of times white people have invaded my world in literal ways. Of course, you having a Chinese tattoo is not um, invading my world, but it's just, it's just a tiny, tiny little gesture in that direction. And it reminds me of, you know, uh, the way Asian Americans have been treated in this country. And it, and I, and it, it wasn't that long ago. I have relatives that I talked to about being locked up by white people during World War II. And to see you um, as a white person walking around with uh, that Japanese item, uh, you know, my, my grandparents had to leave every all most of their possessions behind you know they they lost their farm they lost their homes they lost their hotels and guess who took that guess who took the hotels guess who took the farm farmland guess who took the items guess who invaded the house guess who painted you dirty jap on the side of the house guess who white americans and to see yet another white american just just taking shit from my culture it's like stay in your lane you know there's plenty of white things you could be doing why are you why are you taking my stuff when i had to fight for you know, centuries to uphold my stuff away from people like you and and here's just another example i know you now if this hurts you. Um, you don't want to come at people and call them racist. You just want to say this hurts me, and and 
this is how it affects me. And so I would just ask that you consider that you don't, you can certainly have any tattoo you want. It's a free country. So there's no, there's no law that's being passed. But what I'm telling you is like, when I see that, this is how it affects me. Now, the other major part, part of this is that it all has to be taken in, into context, right? If someone has a Chinese tattoo, that is not the same thing as locking up my grandparents in a prison during World War II. Um, you know, that it's practically not in the same ballpark, right? So everyone needs to understand that. Um, that's what I'm saying. The other thing is that not everyone feels the same way about cultural appropriation. There are plenty of people that are like, I don't give a fuck. You know, take, take everything you want from my culture. I don't care because it just doesn't affect them in that way. And that's the other part that needs to be understood is that just because you have a friend that's like signed off on something doesn't mean it doesn't affect some people. Another thing that needs to be considered is that some people are sort of jumping to cultural appropriation language when I feel like they should really be focusing their attention on perhaps more important things. You know, there's, there's actual racist things that are happening, you know, people being called names, people being bullied in high schools. I mean, 2018 in America, we still have people of color or really anybody for that matter being bullied in schools just because of their identity, their identity, you know, LGBTQ plus person, you have a Asian person, a black person, a person with a disability, you know, a short person, a fat person, so to speak, you know, these, there's, there's just a lot of really horrible, really actual horrible things that are happening to human beings that uh, are a result of our societal attitudes and bias and racism and sexism and ableism and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And, and if we want to put our effort into something, let's put our effort into stuff like that. Cultural appropriation is a symptom of that, but on the scale of things, it's not that big of a deal, but that's just me. Maybe someone else can make an argument um, otherwise. So the other thing is, is um, so to, to uh, talk to Laura. So Laura basically lays out, she, she has a lot of Asian things and she has a lot of Jewish things. And she lays out why she believes she's in, uh, I don't want to use the word entitled, but that's the best word I can think of, that, that she sort of deserved the right because she's traveled a lot and she, she, has, she knows that items she has in her house, they're not just trinkets that she bought at a, you know, at a store or something. You know, it's things that she was given or things she, that she understands. Yeah, it's fine. You know, that, um, and the other thing is don't ask me for permission about stuff like that. Like that, the, and that's not what you're doing, Laura, but, um, what I'll say about things like that is like, again, it's not that big of a deal that the, the big thing is, is that everyone, one needs to just know that some people are hurt by things that you you would never understand why it would hurt them because you have not lived their life. You know, uh, if, especially if you are a privileged person in society, you, you just don't, it's really hard to know the plight of person who on a daily basis is treated like crap because of some part of their identity or some part of the way that they look. It's just, it, it, unless you you live that life, it's just hard to imagine what's the, what, what that's like. And so just have empathy for that and, and know that if you don't know what that's like, just know you don't know what that's like. And that doesn't mean that other people's experience is wrong. You know, you just have to, you just have to really imagine like, 
um, how people can get to that place where, where they would look at your Chinese tattoo and be hurt by that and be angry at you for that. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that they're rational at the time. It doesn't mean that um, they have a well-thought-out reaction to that, but just have empathy for that. You know, like none of us, when, uh, when someone is uh, going through labor, you have a woman, she's giving birth, she's going through labor, um, no one expects that person to have patience or to be rational. You know, you're in pain, you're, you're scared, you're, um, uh, you're uncomfortable and you're going to say stuff that you're, you're not going to say under other circumstances. And so, uh, so, and there are people who have been bullied and mis- mistreated and harmed their entire life because of their identity. And so when you come along and, and you have some cultural appropriation that uh, hurts their feelings, they're, they're not going to react well to that and just have empathy for that and, and try to imagine what, what long road they lived before they got to that point. Okay. It's just about empathy. It's not about offense. It's about empathy. The other thing is, is that if you are a person who is hurt about cultural appropriation and you want to point it out in another person, you have to have empathy too. You know, if someone has a Chinese tattoo and that bothers you, know that you know, 99.999% of the time, that person not only did not know it hurt your feelings, but might actually think they're, they're honoring you and might actually be honoring you. That's the other thing. It's like they might be honoring you. I'm picking on Chinese tattoos, not because I think that's a good example of cultural appropriation. I actually don't. The good examples are blackface, are cartoon versions of Asians or really of any group of people are dressing up as a cartoon native American as your, as your high school mascot and and doing your cartoon version of a rain dance or something. Um, you know, there, there's, there's other examples, uh, dressing up and, and acting quote unquote, like you're an urban black person, you know, when you grew up in, you know, I don't know, suburbia, Indiana or something. Uh, it gets weird because sometimes it's like, well, that's your culture because that's just, it's all social construct anyway. And so what's the diff? But again, it's just how it feels to other people, you know? Um, so having said all that, uh, I just want to, I just, if you're thinking about emailing me about this, you know, feel free to do that. But um I, I don't think I've been explaining it well, partially because it's too complicated and partially because I'm, I'm still kind of parsing this out myself. That, understand that um, if you have a lot of items or have participated in, in quote-unquote appropriating a lot of culture or gathering a lot of different items or things from other cultures, that that's not a bad thing. It's not immoral and it's not, it's not even necessarily cultural appropriation, right? I mean, just take me for example. I am fourth generation Japanese. I, you know, I'm more American than I am Japanese for by far. Like when I meet actual Japanese people from Japan, they are, they are billions of miles away from me in terms of culture. They have a completely different mindset. Obviously they speak a different language. They have a different history. I mean, my 
my Japanese ancestors came over to America in the, in the late 1800s, early 1900s. So it's, you know, imagine the sort of Japanese person that was around back then compared to Japanese people in Japan in 2018. It's just, a, it's a completely different culture. So, um, so I'm not, I, I don't really have ownership over quote unquote Japan um, at all. But in my house, you will see Japanese trinkets. <laughs> I, I have several Japanese trinkets. Ironically, some of them were given to me by my white grandparents who were richer than my Japanese grandparents and actually traveled the world and would go to Japan and bring back Jap. So my, I, I have items in my house that were given to me by my white grandparents that are from Japan. <laughs> and uh, so you could make the argument that I, too, if, if I'm going to apply this generally, like you can't have items from other people's cultures, then, then I am definitely guilty of that. But that's not negative cultural appropriation or, or even shall we say cultural appropriation. It, it all just depends on, on how it affects other people. Has anyone come to my house um, Asian or otherwise, and seen my Japanese items and been offended by that. Uh, not to my knowledge. And I can't imagine that happening. So that's just all that it comes down to. You could be a white woman and have items from Africa that you bought at a vintage store or a, you know, or a Pier 1 Imports or something. You know, just you didn't even go to Africa and you just have all these African masks and African statues and stuff. Your house could be, you could have a huge, you know, um, flag of Kenya on your wall. You could love listening to uh, music from Ethiopia. You could have a tea set that's similar to, to a tea set from Ethiopia. You could eat Ethiopian food every day. So, and someone from Africa could come to your house and not think anything of it. They could just be like, oh, fine. So it's, it's not a, there's no rules to this. There's no like it, 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 there's no like line or set of things that you can and can't do that. It's, it's a matter of uh, just having it on your radar of just, I wonder how this affects other people and maybe asking them. And if they uh, look at what you're doing and and are like yeah it's i don't know it doesn't bother me um you know maybe ask around a couple couple more people and and use that as a guide in the same way that you do everything in life right you you don't i hope out there don't want to hurt people's feelings and when you accidentally hurt someone's feelings then you adjust your behavior for example just this isn't cultural appropriation but it's related is um for the longest time whenever i i don't know why but I think I just adopted this from other people, but whenever I met a Native American person, I would ask them what tribe they were. I, I don't know why. <laughs> I, don't, I, I had no context of even what answer they would give me as to what significance that would have. You know, someone would say, oh, well, I'm half Native American. I said, oh, what tribe? Oh, I'm, you know, I'm part Cheyenne. I'm part Muckleshoot or something. And I'd be like, oh, interesting. And I think I just adopted that from society, I, you know, because it's not like people say like, oh, I'm German. Oh, what part of Germany is your is are your ancestors from? It's like oh Bavaria. Like I I I wouldn't ask that, but for some reason Native American, I'd you'd always ask the for the tribe. Well, uh, ten years ago, I asked a a friend and colleague. She said, "Oh, you know, I'm Native American." I was like, "Oh, what tribe?" And she's like, she she said to me, she's like, "So actually, I don't like to answer that question because for a lot of reasons. I just 
I don't like it when people ask me that question. And I was like, oh, my, I'm so sorry. <laughs> you know, because it was just a reflex. It just like, isn't that what you do when someone tells you they're Native American? Ask them what tribe they are. Now, she might be the only person on the planet that reacts that way. I don't know. But I use that as a guide, and you can be damn sure that since then, when people say that they're Native American, I don't ask them what tribe they are. <laughs> I, I just, unless I know them better, you know, unless, um, I, unless we're having a really long conversation about uh, culture and, and maybe both of our ethnic heritage, that I might say, like, I'm, this is what I would say. I would say, so I'm tempted to ask you what you're, what, what actual tribe you're from or mix of tribes. But the last time I asked someone this, she said that it actually bothered her that I asked her that question. And so I'm curious about what tribe you're from, but I also don't want to offend you. So that's, or, okay, I use the word offend. I don't want to hurt your feelings. I don't want to bother you. Um, That's how I would ask it. So, uh, so I adjusted because I, I'm a human being and I have compassion just like the vast majority of other human beings. And I don't want to, I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings. And so I adjusted my behavior. Now I didn't walk away from that um, instance with my friend and colleague going like, Oh, she's too sensitive or, Oh, she's a, she's just being politically correct or, Oh, she's offended too easily or that's bullshit, blah, 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 blah. You know, because she was, she was firm about how she felt about it, but she also didn't, you know, hate me or, um, renounce our friendship or something, you know, um, it, it's a, it's, it, it's a both and right. I, I need to respect other people's feelings even cause I, I to this day, I have no idea why that bothers people. Um, it's probably a, a, a problem for me cause I haven't asked more people about why that would bother. Maybe I have actually, it's been a long time, but anyway, the point is, is that, um, uh, I, need to have empathy for her and for other people who might have a similar experience and adjust. And she had empathy for me by not like ostracizing me because I'm guessing that I was, you know, uh, the thousandth person that she had to say that to in terms of like, I don't answer that question. So I'm sure it wasn't pleasant for her to have to say that. It certainly wasn't pleasant for her to have me ask her, ask her that question. And yet she, you know, she told me firmly, but she didn't bark down my neck and she didn't, call me a racist or, you know, she just was like, actually, I don't like to answer that question. And a lot of people ask, ask me that. I don't like to answer it. It's actually kind of a problem when people ask me that question. And so, you know, it's both and everyone needs to have empathy for each other. That's, that's my main point. If you, if, if there's anything that my thesis, if there's anything that you remember about Kirk and his talk about cultural appropriation is that one, he's free to use to talk about himself in the third person as I'm doing right now. And two, it's all about empathy. It's all about empathy for other human beings and people are complex. And when it comes to cultural appropriation, you just don't really know how other people are going to react until you actually ask them or until they react to you. You just don't know. Like, I, you know, I, I have no idea why someone would hate to answer that question, that tribe. Actually, I would imagine now that I'm thinking about it and related to my own experience is that she, pro- again, this is total speculation is that she probably just gets tired of answering that question when no one else asks anyone else those questions, right? Like, again, if I said, oh, you know, I'm Japanese American, no one asks me, Oh, what tribe of Japan are you from? It's sort of a, um, 
I don't know. I don't know. Actually, that doesn't even make any sense to me. But <laughs> my, my point is, this is about empathy. It's not about rules. It's not about PC. So, Laura, you, uh, I, you know, I'm not a. You laid it out to me in this rather long email that for your Japanese stuff that you have in your house, that it doesn't hurt my feelings. You know, the the description that you have uh, about the Japanese items in your home and your journey to um, quote unquote acquire or appropriate those things um, doesn't hurt my feelings. It just doesn't like, I don't, I I'm not hurt by that. Someone else could have the identical things in their house and given their path to those things, it could actually hurt my feelings. Having said that, the amount of pain I personally would feel by that would be extremely minimal. <laughs> like cultural appropriation doesn't actually bother me personally that much to my culture. When I see blackface, I'm, I'm hurt for uh, African-Americans. Um, but for me personally with Japanese things, um, and I'll extend this to my white side. I'm Swedish, I'm English, I'm Welsh. Um, you know, I, I just, it doesn't hurt my feelings. And so that's me, you know, but you know, someone else could be, could feel differently about that, but use that information as part of your data set for decision-making regarding a, displaying or honoring Japanese things in your house. Um, so that that's I, I God I really hope that people get what I'm saying. I get emails from people about this, and um, I would say every single email that I get from people, I feel like people aren't understanding what I'm saying. And I again, I don't know if it's because I I'm not explaining it well. I, I think another problem in the previous episodes is I would just kind of rant for a while because I, I, I you know I have a lot of pent pent up hurt around racism in general uh, toward me and towards others. And so I probably was a little too strong or a little too, um, I don't know, totalitarian regarding my uh, feelings about cultural appropriation, uh, uh, you know, incidents. And it probably came across to people like there's rules and, and that I am extremely upset about certain things. Uh, I'll tell you that, I'm much, much, much more upset about racism in general and about people who overtly actually are hurting other people's feelings based on race or just don't care to learn and are hurting people perhaps inadvertently out of ignorance because they just don't care or they think that caring is somehow a democratic thing or a liberal thing or something. And uh, that, you know, really bothers me. And, and also the history of racism around the world. Uh, Japanese people are racist. Chinese people are racist. Americans are racist. Mexicans are racist against, you know, particular whatever social con constructed group of people is uh, somehow deemed subhuman. Their racism is, is it just hurts my feelings, man. It's just all around the world, just throughout at least, you know, contemporary history, just all this arbitrary, silly uh, harm towards people. Why? It, that, that, yeah, that bothers me. And when the notion of cultural appropriation comes up, you know, it's just this tiny grain, on, a tiny grain of salt on this vast beach filled with billions of little, you know, grains of sand of, of racism and humans harming other humans. And so, uh, so just take that into consideration. I don't, 
cultural appropriation is if, if I could wave a magic wand and get rid of five things regarding race, cultural appropriation would not be in that list. There, there's so many bigger things. And, and I think that's another thing that I was saying earlier that everyone that is trying to help other people wake up, um, just sort of put, in my view, I say put cultural appropriation as a lower priority. Um, there, there are things absolutely worth uh, fighting about and getting angry about and expressing our feelings about. And I, I don't know, I just think that cultural appropriation is um, lower on the list. That doesn't mean we don't communicate about it. It just means just, you know, have, have it and put it all in the larger context of things. So again, thesis is empathy. Um, understand that some people can be hurt by things that you don't understand, and that doesn't make them wrong or sensitive or overreactive. You, you just don't. You just don't get it. And you are a loving, caring, compassionate human being. And when you accidentally hurt someone's feelings, then you apologize and you say, "I didn't know that. I'm sorry. Thanks for telling me. I won't do that anymore." That's that's all it comes down to. And when your feelings are hurt, you just tell someone, "Hey." I know you didn't mean it that way, but this hurts my feelings. And, um, I, you know, you're, you're free to continue to do it, but uh, just know that when, I, when you did that, it hurt my feelings. Um, on a scale from 1 to 10, it's a, it's a 3. It's, it's not a 10. It, it, it's, it's a low hurt feeling experience for me, but, you know, it's there. I just, I just want you to know that. So uh, instead of, you know, just trying to humiliate people online, and trying to um, uh, just attack and and ridicule uh, is is not the answer, which is what people are doing. You know, I talk about this all the time. The Daily Show, um, um, just I always say the Daily Show. I haven't watched it in a long time, but just all those, shall we say, liberal comedy shows on TV in which they basically just ridicule and make fun of conservatives, and then you have. Uh, Fox News, which just ridicules points of view on the left. And and you have everyone just walking around with these narratives in their mind about the other side, quote unquote, as, as just being ridiculous, ridiculous, wrongheaded human beings. And, and yet um, that is a ridiculous, wrongheaded way of looking at the world. Half of the country is not a ridiculous, wrongheaded group of people. Um, the other way to saying is, is everyone's ridiculous and wrongheaded. <laughs> Because you're seeing other people as ridiculous and wrongheaded to begin with. And I'm ridiculous and wrongheaded because I'm looking at everyone else and saying they're ridiculous and wrongheaded. We're all just ridiculous and wrongheaded and trying our best. Everyone cares. Everyone's trying. Everyone's coming from a point of view and having empathy and, and really trying to understand people and meet them and listen, you know, and, and gently point out um, the earth is not flat. Um, here's, here's, here's why I believe the earth is not flat. Um, and I care about you and I want to be in relationship with you. But, um, but at the same time, you know, we're going to have this disagreement. Let, let me, let me try to convince you if, if you will, do you, would you care to be convinced? You know, let me try to convince you that, um, you know, all the rhetoric about the wall is, has racist overtones. You know, it's not just about immigration. It's, it's also about touching a nerve of fear in a certain portion of Americans who are, who are irrationally worried about invading people of color uh, into this country and how, um, you know, you've been uh, told a story that 
is meant to make you afraid when in reality there's there's really nothing to be afraid of. I mean, there are certain things to be afraid of. You know, terrorism is scary. That's a little point. Um, certainly there are people of color who commit crimes and certainly there are immigrants who commit crimes. Those are scary things. And there are uh, the same amount of per capita uh, and people who are born in this country committing crimes. If not, according to research, more crimes are committed uh, of the percentage of human beings uh, if a crime is being committed, they're much more likely to, um, anyway, uh, I don't need to go on this road, but the point is, is that it's, it's about empathy, listening, um, taking it easy. Um, you know, anger is fine and good, but it has to be, um, it has to be in the midst of trying to help people to understand you. I, I just, I just find that like, uh, you know, I work as a therapist, right? And uh, about half my clients are couples. And, uh, and even among the individuals that I work with, a, a big part of what people come to me to talk about is their conflicts with other human beings. And I spend my entire day working with clients about trying to help them to have empathy for each other and trying to have them listen to each other and, and seeing the results of what happens when you don't listen and when you don't have empathy for other people, when you, when you, when you give up trying to understand and how people can develop these extremely destructive narratives about each other and will basically produce the behavior they don't want. You know, they'll, they'll uh, build up resentment. They'll uh, be very negatively reactive to the other person, which hurts the other person's feelings, but the other person doesn't trust you enough to express their hurt feelings. So they express their anger or their rejection, which in turn makes you feel like shit and you get hurt, but you don't express the hurt. You just get angry. And this just create, you know, goes back and forth. And before you, before too long, you, you have, um, extremely negative narratives about each other and you divorce. Well, that's what is happening to our country right now. It's exactly the same thing is you have built up resentment. You develop a narrative about the other person that isn't true. You you push, you push, you insult, you hurt, you attack. You have motivated reasoning about everything the other person does. And then you decide, um, and then the other side is hurt, but they don't express their hurt because they don't want to come across as vulnerable. And so they get angry and they go on the attack or they reject. And the cycle just goes back and forth and back and forth. And before long, you are in a situation right now in our country where you have two completely different narratives and two completely different uh, realities because um, uh, because of all the fighting that's been happening, all the anger and all the not listening and all the not compassion. Um, it, it, when I talk to couples, one of the, one of the most you know, a very common experience I have is, you know, let's sit down on my couch and they'll be like, okay, we got in a fight this weekend and we need to talk about it. I'll be like, okay, let's go for it. And their two stories will be completely different. You know, this Rashomon experience, you know, one person will say like, oh, this happened, this happened, this happened. The other person is like, that didn't happen. What are you talking about? I didn't say that. I said this and you said this. And the other person, I didn't say that. I never said that. And the person's like, I can't even believe you don't remember that you didn't say that. Like, and you, you, they're not lying. They, that's what they remember because we're not computers. We don't record things. We, we, we selective, we select the memories that make sense to us. 
and we deny other ones and we create a story in our mind about what happened. And people just have, they, and then, you know, for months I'll be dealing with two completely different realities and it's, it's eerie how different two people can, you know, two, two people can go through the exact same situation and come out of it with just completely different stories. Now, which one is right? Well, in my experience, neither one of them is right. And if I was there, I would have, there'd be a third story. You know, if I was there observing them, I'd be like, well, actually both of you are wrong. This is what really happened. And, but my, my story would just be yet another version because I'm not a computer either. I'm not, I'm not objective. Well, that's what's happening in our country. You know, you have, you have people with just this completely weird set of ideas and another group of people with another weird set of ideas. And each, each side believes they're right. That's the thing is like emotionally it feels right to them. And now when I say this to you out there, you're probably like, well, I, I know that my side is right because I have data and blah, 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 blah. And there's probably truth to that in that you probably have certain things in your belief system politically that are quote unquote, right. You know, um, 97, 98% of scientists, uh, weather scientists agree that global warming is likely um, a, a cause, at least in part, by humans, and particularly uh, carbon emissions. That's a fact. And that is irrefutable science. And uh, to refute that is to deny reality, right? So there are certain things that each side can point to. Um, on the right, you know, they'll point to how uh, certain gun um, statistics don't really support the idea of certain gun control measures or something. You know, the, each side has their thing. Great. But there's actually a whole, most of what I hear people arguing about are things that don't actually relate to that. Anyway, I'm rambling now. I'm going to end this episode. <laughs> anyway, cultural appropriation, empathy, ask around on the scale of racism, not that big of a deal. Thanks for joining me on this podcast. And if you're listening all the way to this point, my God, um, I apologize. I don't normally just sort of free associate like that. <laughs> I don't even know where I went in that whole um, screed, but um, if, you're, if you're still listening, uh, God bless you. And take care of yourself because you deserve it. 